Reality is every one of us will reach a point where one day we will have to give an account for our lives. One day we'll look back and our lives will either have accomplished something fantastic or we will look back and we will wonder what kind of difference did we make? What kind of imprint do we leave on the world in which we exist in today? 20, 30, 40 years down the road, some of us much shorter than that. There will come a time where we will look back and we will wonder, was there really any value to this life? Did we accomplish anything? Is this world a better place than what it was when I got here? That's what the video was basically about. What kind of difference will you make through your life? In just a few moments, we're going to take a look at a group of people who wanted to make a difference with their lives. But I what I want you to realize today is often our making a difference will force us to become uncomfortable. I also want to warn you that a part of this sermon today comes from something that I heard at district conference. Had an incredible speaker, did a fantastic job. Uh, I'm not good at preaching someone else's sermon, so really I only took really one point out of his sermon, but it was a really good one. So uh, that's where some of this comes from. And let's begin today by turning in your Bibles to a passage in Mark chapter 4, verses 34 to 41. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures all in this same general area. As we read today, the ministry of Christ was relatively new to the people. He had already recruited 12 disciples who would walk with him and they would learn from him. He had already turned water into, into wine at a wedding in Cana, and he had already begun his teaching ministry and his healing ministry. In fact, all of these things have led to huge crowds of Jews that are following Jesus. And all of this leads to our passage today. It says this in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 34. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is a great story of Jesus' miraculous power and ability to command the wind and the waves. But there's an awful lot within this story that we often miss. Let me begin with Jesus' words. He says, let us go over to the other side of the lake. This had to be such a curious statement to his disciples. Think about what's taking place on this side of the lake. Huge crowds of Jews are following. People are being healed. The people hang on Jesus' every word. Why would we ever want to leave this place? I mean, this is so good. This is a place where all of us would, can we just stay here the rest of our lives? But she, Jesus says to get up and go. 
More significantly, going over to the other side was something good faithful Jews simply did not do. Let me explain. Jesus' home was in the region of Galilee. I know he didn't really have a place to call home because he traveled all the time, but he did ministry primarily in this section of Galilee, which is known as Capernaum. There were actually about three cities that he traveled back and forth between ministering on a pretty consistent basis. This was a region that was very heavily steeped in Judaism. The people who lived there were almost exclusively Jewish and their religious practices dominated the culture. This is where Jesus has been preaching up until this point. I mentioned that this was a region that was dominated by Jewish culture. A great way to see this is in the nickname that this particular region had received. Remember that this was the land of Canaan, the promised land for the Israelites. It was the place where the Israelites settled after their 40-year journey through the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And as they settled, although really only nine and a half tribes settled on this side of the Jordan, the other two and a half settled on the other side, the land became known as the land of the twelve a clear reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the people who live here, they are the people of God. They are the Jewish people. But the other side of the lake was very different. Journeying eight miles across the lake, the disciples and Jesus would find themselves in a region called the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes were basically the suburbs of a larger city known as the Decapolis. The term Decapolis would literally be translated as 10 cities. Deca being 10, polis being city. That would make sense. Referring to the 10 cities that had banded together to form stability within the region. Curiously, the Decapolis also had formerly been known by another name. It was the land of the seven. They weren't very creative. One was the land of the 12. One's the land of the seven. One is the 10 cities. Just stick a number beside it and you've got the place figured out. But the land of the seven was specifically a reference to something we find in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse one, where we see God instructing the Israelites regarding the conquering of lands. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. It is believed that this Decapolis was formed from the remnants of these seven nations that were larger and stronger than the Israelites. They were the remnants that were driven from their homes and came and settled in this other land. But there are some other things that you should know about the Decapolis. First, know that the 10 cities made up, that made up the Decapolis were primarily Greek or Gentile nations. In other words, they weren't Jewish. I mentioned earlier that a good Jew would never make the journey to the other side of the lake. Well, consider why he would avoid this journey. First, Gentiles were considered unclean. Second, the people of the Gerasenes had set up their burial area right on the edge of the lake, at the edge of their towns, meaning that when Jews came across, they were first greeted by the tombs. Well, dead bodies were also considered unclean. 
In addition to this, they farmed animals like pigs in that region. Well, pigs also were considered unclean. You start to figure out why maybe the Jews didn't make this journey very often to the other side of the lake. Of course, this doesn't even touch on the religious practices of the people who lived in this region. The most prominent false god that was worshipped in the Decapolis was an individual by the name of Dionysius. He was believed to be the son of Zeus, conceived in a mortal woman named Semele. It was believed that while in his mother's womb, Dionysius died, but was brought back to life by Zeus, who supposedly removed him from his mother's womb. And I know that this sounds really weird, but then sewed him into Zeus's thigh so that he could continue to develop and then be born as an actual individual. So consider the irony of this. Dionysius was viewed as a son of God, conceived of a woman and resurrected by a God after death. In addition, he would become the God of wine to the people in the Decapolis. So as they drank, they would give thanks to their son of God. And one last bit of irony is related to the pigs. The people of the Decapolis had a practice of eating the flesh of pigs in a manner not all that different from what we do with bread when we participate in communion, believing that in doing so, they were literally taking in the body of their God. It doesn't take a genius to realize that there are some similarities between their false God and the things that we often associate with the one true living God, Jesus Christ. Knowing what you know about the Decapolis, now consider the storm that arose for the disciples. Jesus says, let, Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the lake. And they begin their journey and a storm arises as they cross the lake. No doubt the disciples would have seen this as a sign. It's because we shouldn't be going over there. It's those ungodly people. This is a message from God that we should have stayed where we were. But they didn't realize that it was God who was actually with them in the boat that night. So they awakened Jesus and asked him to help. But what did they really want him to do? After he calms the wind and the waves, the disciples admit that they weren't expecting that. They likely weren't expecting him to calm the storm that night. They actually posed the question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, if, if they didn't expect him to calm the storm, what was the purpose of waking him up in the first place? Either they wanted him to help bail water out of the boat. That, that actually could be a possibility. Or they wanted permission to turn around. Lord, Master, can, do you think maybe we should go back? The storm is getting pretty rough here. I, I think now would be a good time. Do you not care if we drown? You think maybe we should just go back? You can kind of hear it too. There were crowds of Jews back that way. Let's go back that way. They loved us. But Jesus wanted to go to the other side. So they go. And as they arrive on the other side, again, it must have seemed like a mistake to the disciples. The closest thing to a welcoming party is a herd of pigs and a crazy individual. Well, he wasn't really crazy. He was a demon-possessed man. Look at his description in Mark chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This guy is literally out here in the middle of nowhere in a no man's land because nobody else can handle it. He's got so many problems that the best thing they could do is just say, you know what, go over there. If you're going to hurt yourself, that's fine, but don't hurt us. And they've really, in many ways, kind of created a castaway system where he has been cast away from society. This guy would go on to cry out to Jesus for mercy, and Jesus would grant it to him. Jesus cast the demon into a nearby herd of pigs who immediately run into the water and they are drowned. Well, immediately this seemingly crazy individual finds himself sitting there in his right mind. He is healed. He has been set free. The demons are gone. It's a great day for everybody, right? I mean, everybody's going to love this. This guy who's been a burden to society will no longer be a problem for us. This is wonderful. Wrong. Notice what Jesus did. First of all, he did what nobody else could do in helping this man. The people of this region had tried to help him before, but they couldn't. Not even Dionysius, their false god, could help this man. But Jesus could. It probably made people a little bit nervous. When you have someone with great power, it makes you nervous to be around them sometimes. To make things worse, when Jesus cast out the demons, 1,000 pigs were killed. Now, if you have a thousand pigs, you're probably not just feeding your family. The odds are, if you have a thousand pigs, that's intended to provide meat for an awful lot. It is likely that some of the pigs would have been used in worship of their false god, Dionysius. I've always looked at this as just a financial thing. The owners of the pig, pigs basically want them to get out of here. You just cost us all this money. But I want you to realize today that it was more than a financial thing. Consider that what Jesus did was he revealed his dominion over the religious practices of the Gentiles. These things that were used for worship of this false God were all of a sudden destroyed. And it was almost as if Jesus is saying, your false God is nothing. He was turning their world upside down. So they plead with Jesus to leave, and he obliges. The only one who doesn't want Jesus to leave is the man who had previously been filled with all these demons. In fact, he pleads to be able to go with Jesus. Lord, take me with you. Let me go. You can understand why. Not only did, he, did Jesus just do the impossible for this man, he probably didn't want to stay with these people. These were the people he was probably related to. They knew him. You'd think they'd rejoice over his healing, his deliverance. But instead, they're angry and they want Jesus to leave. But Jesus tells him no. We read in Mark 5, 19, Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, you can imagine the boat ride back across the lake. I picture Peter being the one to open up his mouth first. I told you we should have turned around when that storm came. That was a wasted trip. And I believe that maybe sometimes we as Christians often feel that way about reaching out to our world. It seems like a waste. 
There's so much ministry that needs to be done for people within the church. We shouldn't waste our time trying to reach out to people outside the church walls. We're like the Jews who knew so much about the unclean nature of those on the other side of the lake. But it was a lot easier to talk about them than actually going to them to offer them hope. For us, we get on Facebook and other forms of social media and we rant about the incredible immorality of our world. But we're not willing to do anything to bring hope and redemption to that world. I guess that's because like the disciples, maybe we just find it easier to stay where we are. The disciples and Jesus then return to Capernaum. As they get back, things quickly go back to normal. Jesus goes back to preaching. The crowds are coming, and it's, it's fantastic. The disciples had to love it. This is where we should have been all along. Until one day, everybody gets carried away. As they get carried away, they lose track of time, and the next thing you know, the disciples come to Jesus, and they realize that they've got all of these people that have come, and they've been out here all day, and they are worn out, and they have no food to eat. It's one of only two miracles that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. This is called the feeding of the 5,000. They plead with Jesus, send them away that they can go and find food. And Jesus says, now you feed them. Well, they're looking there. They realize we don't have anything to feed them with. Andrew says, well, we've got one boy. He's got five loaves of bread and two fish. And you guys know the story. Jesus takes those five loaves of bread and the two fish and he multiplies them to the point that 5,000 men and women and children, in addition to that, all eat that day. Afterwards, what started off with five loaves of bread and two fish is collected up and all the scraps total 12 baskets full of food. What an incredible day that must have been. The disciples had to love what was going on and then... Jesus does it again. Mark 6.45 reveals that Jesus tells the disciples to get into the boat and cross to the other side. <laughs> again, can you imagine the thoughts, Lord, do you remember how that worked out last time? We went all the way across there. There was a big storm. We went all the way across there. We met one guy, helped him out. And the next thing you know, they ran us out of town. Lord, why don't we just stay here? But Jesus said, go on over to the other side. The response they get upon arriving in the Decapolis region is very different, though, the second time. We're told in Mark 6, 53 to 56, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, listen to this, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into the villages, the towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. The last time they were here, only one person came out to meet them. When others came, they ran Jesus off. So what changed? Let me take you back to Mark 5, 19. Actually, 19 and 20 this time. 
I read part of it earlier. Do you remember the demon-possessed man who wanted to go with Jesus? Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This man had obeyed Christ. Never really given the guy's name. I'm not sure that really matters. What matters is this was a man who was demon-possessed. He was enslaved, and there was no hope for him. Yet Jesus Christ brought deliverance in his life. And as Jesus brought that deliverance, he says, you go and you tell the people what I have done. Should it surprise us that when Jesus shows up in town again, that instead of people wanting to chase him off, they actually go and get all the sick and they begin to lay them out on mats in front of them. The huge crowds begin to flock to him because they want whatever this Jesus has. I suggest to you today that we need to realize how big an impact this one voice was able to make. By the way, Mark 8 tells the story of another feeding of a large crowd. This time, it's a little smaller than the last one. It's the feeding of the 4,000. But just to let you know, it was on the other side of the lake. What's interesting about this is that at the feeding of the 4,000, Indirectly, it is revealed, it reveals much about the disciples' hearts. We read in Mark 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I want you to compare the two. The first was what happened on the Capernaum side of the lake, where it was a lot of really good Jewish followers who have been following Jesus, and they've been all day without food, and they're probably hungry and famished. Lord, send them off so that they might get food. The disciples have compassion on these Jewish followers. It's been all day. Send them off that they may eat. Now move to Mark chapter 8. You've got the crowd of 4,000 people, many of which likely were not Jewish in nature. We're told in the passage that they had been there for three, is it three days? Three days, and the crowd had not had anything to eat. But it wasn't the disciples that came to the Lord with compassion, saying, have mercy, send them off. But rather it was Jesus who says it's been three days and they've had nothing to eat. I have compassion on these people. In this moment, we see the real issue at hand for the disciples. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to be used by him to do great things, but they wanted those great things to primarily be offered to their fellow Jews. They had compassion on the Jews after one day. But then when there are Gentiles that are in the mix, they go three days without saying a word and Jesus has to speak up for them. Seems to me that there is a different heart. It would appear that although Jesus had a heart for the people, the disciples did not. 
let me suggest to you that the same is true for many of us. We have developed a heart for the church. We have developed a heart for God and his work, but we fail to see that God has a heart for those who are not yet a part of his kingdom. That speaker at district conference began his talk and he asked the question, does God love people outside the church more than he does inside the church? And my answer is no. But to think that God loves people inside the church more than he does people outside the church is just as foolish. All of us were created in God's image and it is his desire that every one of us come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we need to know that God's love for them is the same as God's love for us. Let me suggest that for us, many of us have developed a heart for the church. We have developed a heart for God and for his work. But we fail to see that God has a heart for those who are not yet a part of his kingdom. In fact, I will tell you, he is passionately in love with them. I wonder what it would take for us to develop a heart for the people outside the church. A few years ago, one of my previous churches decided to start a coffee house ministry for the purpose of reaching out to those in the community. On the surface, this sounded like a very exciting opportunity. But there were some folks who were really upset over this. The biggest problem was over the fact that the coffee house would take place in the church. This was God's house, and we shouldn't be doing stuff like a coffee house in a church. I can still remember going into the board meeting, dreading the showdown that was about to take place. But the Holy Spirit was working in preparation of that board meeting. As the meeting began, the individual who had been most vocal against this ministry was all of a sudden silent. Then after a while, he spoke up. He said, at first, I was against the coffee house idea. He emphasized, I still think we need to protect and honor God's house. But then he paused. And he said, since then, I've had time to pray over this. And I realized that my kids and my grandkids are far more likely to come to something like this than they are to come to a Sunday morning service. He said, if there's a chance that this might help get their foot in the door for the church, and then that through this they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, he said, I'm for the coffee house. Suddenly the disagreements somewhat disappeared. I did use the word somewhat. It didn't mean everybody agreed with everything. But the people didn't care any less for God's house than they did before. They still wanted to be treated with respect and honor. They simply realized that God cared far more about the loss than he did about any other type of ministry. What really happened was they began to develop a true heart for the lost, starting with their families. Every week, not necessarily on Sunday morning, typically sometime throughout the week, sometimes after the service is over. I have individuals who will come to me and they will often make very 
admirable statements. They say things like, you know, Pastor, I'd do anything to have my family in church. Pastor, I'd give anything to see my friends in a right relationship with God. Pastor, I'd give anything to see God move like he did in the New Testament where thousands of people were coming to the Lord every day. By the way, that wasn't just on Sundays. Every day, Monday, thousands coming to the Lord. Those are admirable statements. But I do have a question. Do you mean what you're saying? You'd do anything to have your family, your friends, your loved ones come to Christ. Anything is a pretty big word. This past week, I met with the evangelism committee, and we began to work on some outreach ideas. Let let me ask you something. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Peter and Cornelius? Cornelius one day was in prayer, and as he was in prayer, God tells him, send for a man named Peter who is staying at a house on Straight Street. So he sends two people to go get Peter. About the same time, Peter is up on the roof waiting for lunch. I don't know if he was just hungry and just kind of staring off in a daze. It says he's in a trance. And all of a sudden, the Lord shows him a vision of a sheet that is coming down from heaven with a bunch of unclean foods. And the Lord tells him, go and eat. And of course, Peter said, oh, no, they're unclean. I couldn't do it. And the Lord says, do not call unclean that which I have made clean. And the Lord tells him, there are two men that are coming for you. When they get here, I want you to go with them. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile. Remember, unclean. The Lord tells Peter, I want you to go with them. Peter shows up at Cornelius' house with the escort. And he gets there to find that it's not just Cornelius that is waiting for him. But rather, Cornelius has invited all of his friends, all of his family. He has invited as many people as would come to hear what this Peter had to say. I wonder, what if we as a church use this same mentality to present the gospel message to the people that we love, much like what Cornelius did? What if, what if we did something similar to the My Hope for America project that Billy Graham did just a year and a half ago? They presented a video, they encouraged individuals to invite people over to their homes, have a cookout or bake cookies, give them milk, whatever. I don't know. Just, just have people come over and hang out. And then while they're there, you show them a video. And it shared the gospel message. And then after the gospel message is over, then you share your story. Well, what if we did something similar to that? I'll tell you, I'd be willing to give up a night of the week for individuals if you would be willing to open up your home. Invite all of your friends, your family, the people that do not know Christ. Invite them to your home. Tell them, I want you to meet somebody. My pastor's going to be there. I want you to be able to meet them. And give me the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with your friends, your neighbors, your family. And then you share your story. Are you willing to open up? I'd do anything. I'd give anything to reach my family. Really? Are you willing to actually act on that or is that just a noble statement that we make? 
I want to challenge you as a church to be a part of reaching the lost. It's a wonderful idea to say that I want to reach people. I want to do whatever it takes. But what if that means actually doing something, not just saying something? You're going to see more information about this because this is something that I really believe our church needs to do. I look at our church and over the past year, we have reached people. Our church has grown. It is a wonderful thing. But I will also tell you that at the same time, we're not doing nearly enough. So how about we go back to the New Testament way of church growth, where they met in people's homes and they shared with one another and they loved one another. And as they did, the gospel was spread dramatically. What if we as a church did the same thing? It's great to say, I want that to happen. Are you willing to open up your home? I hope so. I believe God is calling us as a church to get in the boat and cross over to the other side of the lake. It's not about buildings, chairs, music, or coffee houses. It's about having a genuine heart for the people on the other side of the lake. As we develop a heart to those for those on the other side of the lake, I will guarantee you that it will not be easy. It will come with discomfort, maybe even some fear. There will be storms as we cross over that lake. There will be times that the message is not welcomed with open arms. But as we love the people and as we do whatever it takes to introduce them to Jesus Christ, God will make it worth doing. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we know that there are so many other basic foundations of the faith that we can look at. But we know that every one of these people here today has been called to be an evangelist of your word. To share the good news to the world around us. Lord, I pray right now that you would fill us with such a passion to reach those that are lost that those words, I would give anything or I would do anything, would be so much more than words. But help us to back it up with action. Help us to be people that are willing to get uncomfortable. And if that means inviting people to our house and risking that people will think we're fanatics or that we're strange or we're weird or whatever, Lord, if that's what it means, then, Lord, I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts so that we might be willing to take that risk. And I pray already for those family members, those friends, those co-workers, those neighbors. Lord, I pray that you would open up doors, open up their hearts right now, begin to soften their hearts so that as they hear the gospel message, they would be quick to respond and they would embrace this grace, this hope that only you can provide to them. But I pray that you would begin in us. Help us to see that this is not about us at all. It's about you. Lord, may you be honored as we become your servants. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do thank each of you for being a part of our service. I do have one last announcement. Some of you already know this. Some of you do not. Uh, I will tell you that I am very grateful for the ministry that... Mike McConnell has had, and Marissa, over the past year with our teens. Uh, however, I, was, I guess it was this past Monday or the week before, uh, 
Pastor Mike uh, announced to me that he is resigning and he has the opportunity to go and to serve at his home church where his parents attend in Delaware. And that will be happening two weeks from today will be his last Sunday. Uh, we're very grateful for Mike and the leadership that he has provided. I will also tell you that the future of the youth ministry is still in good hands. And I'm grateful for what Mike has done. Nate Drake has volunteered already to step into that role in an interim capacity. And he will do a fantastic job. He's already demonstrated in the past how much he loves the kids. And they love him as well, which makes it a much easier uh, bridge to the next leg. What will the next leg look like? I don't know. We're looking at different options. Uh, we believe God has someone who will do a great job in mind already. Um, Mike, we're very grateful. Is he up there? Mike and Marissa, very grateful for your ministry and what you've done for the church here. Now, we're going to take about a 15-minute break before, actually, maybe 20 minutes before we have our local church conference. Uh, thank you for being a part of our service. I will tell you, if your kids are in the nursery, be sure to go pick them up before the local church conference. Thank you.